these services and the children singing has been a real highlight. I've enjoyed that way of opening a service. It's been a good day today. I'm glad my family is here and I'm also glad God is here. That's the most important aspect of our meeting together. This week uh, there was a story about a, a, a lady in Houston who had a long-lost daughter that identified this girl by a picture and uh, she was down in Mexico, and there's a video that got out. There was this girl being drugged out of her house, 14 years old, screaming and yelling and being shipped by force up to, Me up to Houston to live with this lady that was supposedly her mom. The judge ordered that she go, and uh, the parents begged for a DNA test, and they didn't give her one, and they shipped her up there and gave her to this woman. Well, after she was there a few days, they decided to do the DNA test after all, and she was not this lady's daughter and she got shipped home again this week. Can you imagine the trauma of that? I'm glad that uh, God doesn't make mistakes like that. There's a verse in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. He knows his own, and he'll never make a mistake. And uh, we sometimes wonder, we look around us and see other people that don't do it quite like we do it. They look a little different than we do, and they do things differently, and, and we're not sure where they stand with the Lord. But there's never a moment that God doesn't know. And he could take and draw a line around his kingdom. He knows exactly where it falls. He knows who is in and who is out, and he would never make a mistake. 
He would never take somebody home that doesn't belong to him or leave someone behind that does belong to him. And uh, we can trust in that. And that, that's a chilling thought to some, but it should be a very comforting thought to others. Now it's true that this kingdom we talked about last night is a spiritual kingdom, it's not a territorial one, it's not something you can draw on a map. It doesn't have political boundaries, but it does have boundaries because God knows where the boundaries exist and where the limit of this is. And whatever boundaries it is, it's, it exists between darkness and light. It exists between sin and righteousness. It gives, exists between people that are led by the Spirit and people that are driven by the flesh. That's where the line is drawn. And this kingdom exists like a circle of light in the darkness of the world. And he knows exactly where that line is. And I'm grateful tonight for two things, many things, but these two specifically tonight. First of all, that there is an open door from one side to the other. Wouldn't it be awful to be left out in the dark and know there's no way back in? Uh, no open door, nothing to get me from where I am to where I really should be. That's one thing I'm grateful for. And that door we find at the foot of Jesus' cross, it's there, it's open. And it's a welcoming kingdom, this kingdom of light. The second thing I'm grateful for is that the Holy Spirit was sent and is actively working to bring men from the outside to the inside. Now, the Spirit came for two reasons. He came for two groups of people. Uh, Jesus said that when the Spirit would come, He would come to guide us into all truth. He would remind us of things Jesus has taught. He would uh, convict us when we go astray. He would uh, teach us. In fact, Paul writes that the church exists because the Holy Spirit is here because He is the one that baptizes all of us into the same body through that Spirit. He intercedes for us. So He's active inside the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom on earth could not exist except for the Spirit of God in its midst. I don't think we could exist otherwise. But there's another reason the Spirit came. And I'd like to read in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And notice verse 8 especially. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. So when Jesus was on the earth, the Spirit was not poured out. And Jesus was a strident voice against sin. He was quite uh, confident and capable to talk to people about their sin. And that's what got him in trouble so often because people didn't like that. But as he was leaving, he left his Spirit to continue the same work, reminding people of their spiritual need and their their opposition and their position of defiance against God. When Jesus was here, he was a constant and visible example of what righteousness looks like. I believe when he said the Word was made flesh, it's sort of like if you take this whole book, this scripture, this revealed Word of God, and wrap it up in flesh and put shoes on it, and have it walk around doing the very thing that this book says, that's the Word made flesh. It's sort of like a carpenter that needs to leave his crew working 
and can't uh, quite explain how to do it, if he could just take his explanation and put shoes on it and leave him there to show him how to do it while he's away, wouldn't that be nice? That's sort of what Jesus was. The Word made flesh, put shoes on it, and came to earth to show in an active sort of way exactly what God expected. But when he left, the Spirit came, and the Spirit keeps on reminding men of righteousness. Jesus' victory, I believe his death and resurrection, was the passing of judgment on the prince of this world. It says so here, the prince of this world is judged. And I believe that as a consequence of that victory, this this evil one has been condemned and he's doomed and he's finished. As a consequence, everyone under his authority and in allegiance with him has received the same condemnation. And uh, this judgment is also upon everyone. And so the Spirit has come to remind people of that. There's judgment coming. And there's a day when these things will be called into question, called into account. So the message tonight is going to be pretty simple. We're going to look at a contrasting picture, a very stark, uh, a stark comparison, polar opposites. We're going to look at a God so pure and so holy that he dwells in unapproachable light. And they're going to look at as sin as a sickening stain that doesn't even belong in the universe that God created. It's, it's I guess the, the more we understand holiness, the better we can understand sin. Not, I presented this way for a reason. I believe that we as people cannot understand mercy unless we understand justice. It's hard to understand love unless we understand the alternative. So we'll look at these two things together. If we would see it like God sees it, I don't believe we would focus as much on why a loving God would punish sin. If we would see it like God sees it, I wonder if we would rather wonder why a just God can ever forgive it. If we would see it from God's eyes, it would look very different. The Spirit convicts of righteousness. In the first night, we talked about the fatherhood of God. And I love to dwell on that concept because it's beautiful. And we all like that. A God that loves us and provides for us and wants to be a father to us. There's another side that's just as real and it's just as part of God. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 11 verse 22, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. And we like the goodness part, but the severity side is just as real and just as part. We can't pick and choose the parts of God we like. If we want to accept his totality, we have to understand and accept both aspects and all the aspects of God. And so first of all tonight, God is holy. There's, there's many pictures of God's holiness, and, and we could debate about which one to turn to, but one I like is in Revelations 4, verse 8. This is at the very end, the last book in the Bible. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. That's a picture of worship and holiness being attributed to to God and His character. And throughout history, if you look back at the prophets uh, that, that got a glimpse of God, they have one thing in common. Every time a man saw God in some way, he was always overcome with the holiness of God. And it always, the first reaction, the first emotion was fear in the presence of God. 
Isaiah said, Woe is me. And Ezekiel fell on his face. And John in Revelation fell as one that was dead. Another thing I find interesting is that throughout history, maybe hundreds of years apart, these men that were given a glimpse of what heaven is like, they all describe something very similar to this. Here's God and his throne. These angels, the seraphims, like Isaiah saw, flying around the throne and, and crying out, holy, holy, over and over. And I don't know, but I wonder if all eternity they'll be there proclaiming the holiness of God. Scripture describes God as holy, as righteous, as just. And that basically means blameless and perfectly straight and equitable and fair and everything. And God's holiness is supreme. It's without fault. And God's standard of perfection is such that we are not used to it. We're not used to looking at something this perfect. A uh, friend of mine installed a pool table in their basement. And this is the good kind, the kind that's perfectly level. It's slate and it's, it's a good one. And as the, uh, the men came to set it up, they used this level to sit there and make this thing perfectly level. And they showed him this level, and it was so accurate and so uh, sensitive that even slipping a dollar bill under one end would move the bubble its whole width one way or the other. That's how perfect and exact that little level was. We say, that's perfect. That's not perfect like God is perfect. Hubble Telescope turns 25 years old. Uh, one of these days, past or future, I can't remember. And I read a story about when this was built. And one of the, the difficult things about building the Hubble telescope was the mirror. It's a wide mirror. It's a concave mirror. That's to focus the images of the stars in a very specific way. And they spent days and nights planning this thing with laser uh, tools and trying to make it just perfect. And they could only work on this thing in the wee hours in the morning because about a mile away was an interstate. And the trucks and the trailers going up and down the interstate would jiggle their instruments enough that they couldn't do it like they wanted. They had to wait till the wee hours of the morning when the traffic was still. And when they were done, they said they could take this mirror, if they would expand it to the size of the Gulf of Mexico, there'd be little ripples on that mirror about a quarter of an inch high. If you would take your bathroom mirror and expand it to the size of the Gulf of Mexico, it would have waves about 90 feet high. That's the difference. We say, wow, that's perfect. It's not perfect like God is perfect. We're not used to such perfection. We don't usually measure ourselves by it. We, don't, we, don't, we aren't quite so exacting. We don't care if the bathroom scale is a little bit off in our favor. We wouldn't want the meat scale to be off, but we don't mind fudging some things if they're to our advantage. Now, not only is God holy, but he wants us to know what we look like beside that holiness. And God gave Moses Ten Commandments. And, uh, well, the whole law, but this was some of the important ones. Some things to do and not to do. And he gave many others beside. And there was a reason he gave the law, and Paul describes this in Romans 7. It says, Wherefore the law is holy, same word that describes God, and the commandment holy and just and good. Was that which was good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by which that, that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So here we have a law that's as straight and, and level as God himself. 
And one of the reasons for the law is that sin by the commandment would become exceeding sinful. And we know these commandments well. Uh, Don't worship idols, don't steal, don't lie, uh, honor your parents, don't kill and don't covet. Many things in there. And when God gave these laws, I don't think he was giving them as an afterthought. He was not making suggestions. It would be nice if people would do this and help keep order in the earth. They wouldn't kill each other. And I don't believe that's why he gave them. I believe the laws that God gave were like an extension of his own nature. And when he gave these things, they're rooted in his own character. And when we violate one of the laws of God, we're violating the very character of God, not just a suggestion that he made to keep order. God said, thou shalt not kill. God owns life, and he's jealous over it. God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Well, God is always faithful, and he wants men to be the same. And uh, he wants us to reflect that faithfulness. God said, thou shalt not bear false witness. Why? Because God is true. He would never tell a lie, and he wants us to reflect that, that part of his character. Jesus even condensed all these things down to two. He said the first one is, love the, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and then love thy neighbor as thyself. And even then, in man's selfishness, we still can't get it together. I believe that God's law is a picture of God's perfection, God's holiness, his standard. And the rich young ruler had the audacity to stand before Jesus and say, all these have I kept from my youth. He did not know that he was standing in the presence of the lawgiver himself. And these scribes that drug the woman that was caught in adultery out into the town square or the temple and accused her before Jesus did not know that they were standing beside the same measuring stick themselves and being measured by the same standard. Anyone who thinks that their own goodness is enough needs to take a look at this measuring stick. How would we answer? Uh, It's so glib, so easy to say, sure, I've done these things. I know what this is all about. But think of what this young ruler must have meant. Uh, All these things have I kept. Every action, every word, every motive, complete perfection. And saying that to the Lord Jesus himself. Stephen told the Pharisees, you have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. There's an interesting thing in the Ten Commandments. The first nine cover something that a man can commit and do. The tenth one has something to do with an issue of the heart. It's thou shalt not covet. It's the only one that you couldn't do with your hands or your, your feet. Uh, it's the last one. And I believe God gave that on purpose. The first nine cover things you can commit. And the last one covers something that only exists in the heart. And I believe he did that on purpose because actions are important. And what we do is important. But God wanted them to understand and realize that that he's not only concerned about action, he's concerned about heart matters. And I believe the law is not only a moral law, the law is a spiritual law. Jesus, or God says that, and Paul wrote that. Many people can live without moral sin and feel good about themselves. The rich young ruler did that. On a moral level, he could say, I have not committed adultery, I have not murdered anyone, I have not done these things. But the law goes much deeper than that. Uh, it's not just moral, it's spiritual. The moral law covers things a man can commit. A spiritual law covers issues of the heart. 
I'd like to invite you to an example of that in Matthew 5. Here we have Jesus expounding on this law. And uh, he says this in Matthew 5, 21. For where your true... I'm six. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. If I remember the story right, it happened right here in Gladys a number of years ago. A man, and you might remember the story, made a list of his enemies, people on his list that he hated. And he took his shotgun and went to the door of the first person on the list, knocked on the door, and when he came to answer it, they sh he shot him and killed him on the front steps in front of his family. And if I don't have that story right, you can correct me. And based on the law of God, he would be guilty of murder. And uh, even the scribes would agree with that. The Pharisees would agree with that. But the reality in Jesus' mind is that this man was guilty long before he pulled the trigger, long before he walked up to the steps. Because the law here does not only condemn the moral action, but the spiritual issues at the heart of it. Now, violence is a growing problem. It is here and all over the world. But God sees a deeper problem. He sees hatred. He sees unforgiveness. He sees gossiping tongues. And he sees character assassination and lying about people. And this, you know, the Old Testament law was thou shalt not kill. James wrote, speak not evil one of another brethren. Now, the law of God condemns both. It's the same root issue and at a different level. And this covers both. In Matthew 5, we have another one very similar. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now you can take moral sin of this nature and make it, there's all kinds of variations. If a man lives with his girlfriend or, or a man lives with his boyfriend or uh, any kinds of immorality or bestiality you could mention. There's many ways to violate that law, but there's another sin that's even more prevalent and deeper rooted, and that's when people feed the tiger inside and uh, put things in front of them that stimulate desire and watch things and think things and the video clips and the things in their minds. It's not only a moral law here, it's a spiritual law. See, a moral man can watch anything he wants to in here and feel himself very upright and godly because he's never done what the Ten Commandments said not to do. But God's law not only covers that, it covers hard issues. See, holiness is not simply self-restraint. Holiness is heart purity. It goes much deeper than, than restraining yourself. And longing for holiness like God is holy is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Though we're not perfect, we long for that. So Romans says this about God's laws. Uh, no one can be justified by it. No one has kept it. Paul writes, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And if the law is that, then it's to draw a straight line and we can stand beside that line and say, you know what? 
there's something wrong with me and something right about God. This is not a question of trying to do better or trying to to, uh, try harder. It needs to drive us to repentance. In Romans 3, uh, Paul has scoured the Old Testament and found lists of things that God says about the carnal nature, the, the unregenerate man. And he, I guess we'll just read through that without a lot of comment. But Romans chapter 3, verse 10, talks about the sinfulness of men in their unredeemed state. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poisons of asps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Verse 17 says, In the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are, this is a pretty dismal list of characteristics of people. And however you see yourself in this list, this describes something about ourselves. Uh, none righteous. I don't believe any man has ever stood up beside the character of God and pro- was proclaimed holy in his own standing without uh, no one understands. I think sometimes our tendency is to swim between two extremes. And one extreme is thinking we're good enough without any help at all. Another extreme is thinking we're too bad to save anyway. And people struggle with one or the other. No one seeks God. We said the first night or second night, no one comes to God unless the Lord draw him. Uh, We've all gone out of the way, and this to me is not a picture of accidentally getting lost. It's a picture of going out of the way on purpose. Uh, I knew what was good and right, but I I did the other thing. We blame Adam and Eve for fallenness, but how many times have we known better and fallen anyway? If they wouldn't have done it, I probably would have. There's none that doeth good. No fear of God. You know, the fear of God resides in this question. Can I do wrong and get away with it? And the reason many people sin is because they think they can do it without consequence. And that's part of the, the lack of fear of God. And they think they can cross God's character and act like nothing happened, violate God's law and, and get away with it. There's a pattern to sin. And I'm not going to read the story of the prodigal son tonight, but there's a couple of things in that story that point out to me how sin works. And if you can think of that story a little bit, get it fresh in your mind. It's a story about a dad, a father. In my mind, this father represents some characteristics of the heavenly father. And there's two sons. And I would say these are two kinds of sinners. Uh, One is the runaround kind, the party kind, the live it up kind. And the other is a stay-at-home religious kind. And uh, if you read that story, those two things in mind, you start picking up some parallels that are quite interesting. But, but each has a pattern. And if we don't recognize it, we're going to come up to an unexpectedly problematic finish at some point in our life. If you look at this, this younger son and his desire to go off and do his own thing and please himself and Serve the flesh. Behind every sinning person is a sinful attitude, first of all. And a lot of people start this way. 
I can do what I want, and I can prove everybody else wrong, and I can get away with it because I feel like I'm going to be in control of this. And behind every sinful life is a sinful way of thinking. There's wrong ideas. You know what the sinner thinks? He thinks that I can make myself happier than God can make me. If I was left to myself, I, I know what's best for me and I'm going to end up happier than if I would stay here. The sinner thinks sin brings more pleasure than righteousness. If you'd have to choose between the two, the pleasures of sin or the pleasures of righteousness, righteousness will leave me bored and, and unhappy and sin will give me joy and freedom. That's what they think. Rebellion is better than obedience. Flesh is better than spirit. And if that's our attitude, the problem with that is that other people often see it before we do. It's a way of thinking, but it starts to come out. And before we even see it, other people can pick up on it. And if they would come to you and say, I'm, I'm concerned about your attitude, it'd be well to listen because this is the attitude at the top of a slippery slope toward dangerous places. Sin produces things if it's let go in our life that we never would have thought ourselves capable of doing. Something about sin hardens the conscience. And I believe sin even destroys faith. I believe faith can be destroyed in different ways, but one thing that destroys faith is constant choice or conscious choices to do wrong when I know it's right. And as I move in that direction, something happens to my faith. It shatters our intellect. But I believe when a person sins on purpose, he's crossing a line with God. And he knows what's true. And by stepping on the other side of it, he puts himself in a dangerous position with God. It's in danger of deception. What God said about deception, because people didn't, know the, didn't want to know the truth and didn't love the truth, he's going to send them a strong deception that they would believe a lie. Now, if, if Satan is out to deceive you and my flesh is out to deceive myself, and if God himself sends me a strong delusion, what chance do I have? That's why it's a dangerous path to take. Now it's possible to repent. Even after you've crossed the lines, we can repent and come back. But I'll, I'll tell you something, that the more often we do that, the harder the returning comes. I've seen people that have a habit of sinning and repenting and then giving up for a while and coming back. And, and it seems like the first few times their repentance is genuine and they're really going to try, but every time it happens, it gets weaker their strength is lessened. Their ability to do what's right is, is lower. And it's very, very difficult to regain what a person once had the longer he does that. Most of you have climbed Crabtree Falls. Up on the top of Crabtree Falls, I believe it's one of the highest falls this side of the Mississippi, series of falls. And uh, I was up there with a the youth group a long time ago. I remember all along the trail, they had these signs up, don't cross the ropes, the boundaries. And uh, they even had signs saying how many people were killed. And I'm not sure, back then it was probably about 23 people that had fallen. And uh, we got up to the top, and this nice place you could sit, and this rope around this rock. And the first thing we did was step over the rope. Because it's easy. I mean, it's, it's placed at a very safe place. You want to see anything, you get over the rope and get a little bit closer because, you know, that's pretty far back. And it's a nice, gentle slope. It's a deceptive slope. And it's a wet slope. And it's a mossy slope. And uh, year after year, people fall and die because of that. 
The most recent one that I remember was a 28-year-old man who's a photographer, wanted to get a little bit closer and take a picture of the falls, got closer, tried to get a picture down over the edge, and something happened, he was gone. And he was number 28, 27. Sin is a little bit like that. It looks so easy to retreat from, and it's so easy to back up from, but it's a dangerous place to be. Sin brings bitter endings. It's an impossible thing to assume you can sin without consequence. God will see to it that you don't. The younger son never dreamed about the pig pen. The woman caught in adultery never dreamed of being drugged into public uh, one morning in front of Jesus. Now that's that kind of sin. The other kind of sin that, that this parable about the, the father and his two sons points out to me is a different kind of sinner, but it's the same basic problem. You don't have to leave home. You don't have to waste an inheritance. You don't have to go live a riotous life to be a sinner. And one thing this older brother uh, points out in his answers to his father is a works-based understanding of being right with his dad. He came and said, look at me. I've never done anything to disobey you. Father, you owe me something. I've served you so long, and uh, you've not given me anything, and you don't know that sinner anything. And when this older brother came back to the house, he was not angry at sin and the damage it had done to his brother. He was angry that his dad was receiving him back inside so easy. And his mind is like, he got the fun, and he got away with it. He got his fling and got to come home too. That's not fair. Let me tell you something. Sin always brings a crop, a bitter crop, and the person that envies a sinner simply exposes the sin in his own heart. Because a person that looks at a sinner and says, you lucky guy, you did it, you got away with it. Look at poor me slaving back here at home. He believes the same thing that the sinner believes. There's some advantage in rebellion. That sin is somewhat better than righteousness. It brings a, a more interesting life. If you think like that, sin is very close. This older brother was very unhappy in the house of his father. He railed at his dad. He said, Dad, all this time, and you've given me nothing. Uh, no parties, no good times, never even gave me a kid to have a, a feast with my friends. Been sort of useless serving you, Dad. What's in it for me, Dad? See, his attitude was simply serving for wages, not for love or not for respect for his dad. So the younger son came back home seeking the position of a servant, and he was let back in and restored to the position of a son. The older brother came back home expecting to be the favored son, but with an attitude of a hired man. And at the beginning of the story, the older brother's in the house and the younger one is out. At the end of the story, the younger brother's in the house and the older one is out. The sin of the younger was turning his heart far from home. The sin of the older was the same thing. The younger gained entrance through repentance and brokenness. And the older one needed repentance and brokenness just as much as the younger one did. And both of them 
were in violation at some point in their life with their father because uh, of their attitudes. True holiness is when the heart and the attitudes are in agreement with the attitudes of my heavenly father. That's where holiness starts. Now, the third thing that the Spirit convinces men of is judgment. And Romans 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, a great stumbling block for many people is this thing of punishment. How can a loving God punish so harshly? Why would a God who loves his creation make a place called hell? And that's a very real question for many people. And I'm not quite sure how to explain that, but I have been thinking about that. And one thing I wonder is this. There is an inverse relationship between love and hate. And uh, if you love your child, you will hate cancer, and you will hate snakes, and you will hate diseases because of what it might do to him. And if you take your child to the doctor, and your child is sick, and the doctor says, yeah, he has a few malignant cancer cells. It might kill him, but just a few cells. It won't be a big deal. You'll probably get a new doctor because... He is not loving your child like you do. And as God looks at, at sin and at people and knows what sin can do to people, the, the more he loves the, the person, the greater he's going to hate the sin that damages the person. And if we look at sin and say, what's the big deal with sin? It's because we don't love righteousness like God loves it. And the closer we get to that, the more we'll see it this way. I believe God's primary purpose is to judge sin and eradicate sin. And he sees sin as something different than the sinner. But something happens in the uh, sinner's life. Sometimes I think we don't understand sin right. This is a new thought to me. But sin is not something that we just do. Sin is something that we become. And it starts to change our life and change our, the way we think about things. And it twists our soul. And as the longer we live in it, in rebellion toward God, our attitudes and motivations and, and our, the basic programming of our soul is twisted and marred by that. And there's something interesting about Judgment Day. In all the accounts of Judgment Day that I read, and for, for, correct me if I'm wrong, I never see a man groveling in repentance before God on Judgment Day. They do not beg for mercy on Judgment Day. They try to get away. They try to flee. They call for rocks and mountains. They kneel because they have to, not because they want to. I believe that the man that comes to Judgment Day hating God will hate Him forever. The person that loves sin will hate righteousness forever. Because that's part of his soul. It's part of who he becomes as a person. And I believe that the sin and the sinner become so, so intertwined and inseparably linked that they must be dealt with together if they come to the end of life without that repentance. And some would say, and I believe I have, but I saw this verse today. Some would say that hell is simply a withdrawal of God from his people, from, from the sinner. But, but look at Revelation 14, verse 10, and think about why this might be. It says, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
What does that mean? This is not simply a banishment. It's not simply going out to some far reaches where God isn't. The horror of it is in the very presence of the Lamb of God. Now, I don't want to minimize at all what Scripture says. But fire and brimstone aside, isn't God's presence enough in itself to torment a person that would hate Him and torment a person that's not right with Him? Think about it this way. If there's two children in a room and one adult, why is it that one can feel so uncomfortable and one can feel so approved? Why is it that one can receive good vibes, feelings of approval, and that it's okay? And the other one can feel such shame and such, such uh, withdrawal and such fear in the same presence. Why is that? Think about it if you were a, po- a poacher. If you shot six deer last week and three of them were, were fawns, if you killed 16 turkeys, if you started the forest fire and now you're invited to sit in a meeting of game wardens, and they don't know all about it. Uh, the refreshment might be very good. The, uh, the music might be nice. The fellowship might be great, but it's not great for you. Why? Imagine you're a murderer. You've killed someone's child. And now you're forced to come and sit as that family holds a, a memorial birthday party in honor of this child. How would you feel? makes a big difference how you stand with the people around you. I believe the only way to enjoy the presence of God is to love God and all He stands for. And heaven is beautiful if we're prepared for it. But I wonder if an unrighteous sinner would be in the presence of God if he would hate it just as much as you would love it. Is that possible? I'm just thinking here, but I'm wondering what it would be like in the presence of God as an unrepentant person. Now, many people argue that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell, but in reality, the loving Jesus taught us more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. But the beauty of it is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the beauty of this picture. The most beautiful part of this story is the cross that stands between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the open door by that cross and what it means to be able to leave one and enter the other and come out from under this life of of horror at the presence of God and enter into a life of, of joy. And the cross is an open door. It's a place where a man can reckon with himself and reckon with God. The cross is a cruel instrument. It was invented and used by the Romans. The Romans did it. The Roman hands put him up there. The Jews demanded it. Jewish voices cried out, crucify him, crucify him. I believe God designed it. This is a key part of God's plan to redeem humanity. It says in Isaiah, and whatever this might mean, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He laid on him the iniquity of us all. I believe this cross is a message to everyone in the darkness, everyone under sin. It's a message It's a message from God about several things. First of all, it's a message about how God sees them. He loves them. He wants them to be part of His kingdom. 
I hesitate because I'm not sure how much substitutionary aspects is involved in this. You could ask Milo about that question. But if all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead to what Jesus was about to do, was going to do, if you can imagine the picture of the man laying his hands on the animal that's bleeding and dying and having for a time his sins covered, uh, God could have chosen an easier death for Jesus. I wonder sometimes why he didn't. A bullet would have been simpler. Uh, hanging or something more quick instead of hanging for hours. But I wonder if, he, if, if Jesus was doing it on my behalf and for me, if he's not also doing it to show me something about what my sin would have cost. Now I could hang there a thousand years on that cross and never atone for one of my sins, but it's a picture of, of how, how sinful I am without, without Christ's intervention. It's a message about God's justice. There was a debate between a Muslim and a, a believer one time, and the Muslim said something like this, Allah is so great, or so loving, that he can forgive sin without blood and sacrifices. And the Christian said, My God is so just that he could never forgive sin without it. I believe the cross is something that all the saints of the Old Testament looked forward to, and all the believers forever after looked back to, because it was what Jesus did that gave us that entrance. It's a forever statement about God's love. In spite of the sin, in spite of the depravity, and the violation of his, his law, God loves the world, and because he loves it, he gave his only begotten son. Sometimes people wonder if God loves them. I heard a person say one time, I really have no evidence that God loves me. If you're ever not sure, go to the cross and look at it and understand that for God so loved the world that he did this. We're never an object of God's, of God's indifference. We're always an object of his love. Remember that. Watch your Colossians 1. There are a few verses there. This is uh, what Paul writes about coming into this kingdom. Colossians 1, verse 12. Now, we didn't go into this, but in the New Testament, in Acts and Paul's writings and Peter, there's some very specific things that, we, that need to take place if we're going to go through that door and enter the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is one. I believe repentance is just like a reverse gear on a dead-end street. Without it, there's no getting anywhere else. Faith is simply pinning our hope on the Lord Jesus for what I, I need from him. But here in Colossians 1, verse 12, it says this, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you look at this carefully, Paul is looking backward. He's looking at where he stands and mentioning back, in backwards order what it took to get him here. And so look at this in a forwards order, go to the last verse. And there's several things that are important. If we ever want to get from where we were in the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of light, first of all, there's redemption. We already talked about the cross, the death, the life of Christ. Every sin that's ever been covered, every believer that will ever believe depends on what Jesus did here. And Jesus promised... He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. 
Anyone that chooses, anyone that believes can come and pass through this door. There's deliverance in this passage. Deliverance from the power of darkness. Now if you go outside tonight after dark, the darkness will not grab you. You might think so, but it won't. It's passive. It's simply the absence of light. When we talk about sin and a life of sin, this is a life of bondage. There's something else going on. There's actually, in the law of enslavement to sin, there's a force that would hold us and a bondage to sin that is not easy to get away from. It works a bit like quicksand. If you don't have help, the more you struggle, the more you'll be wrapped up in it. It works like a spider's web. It's, it's designed for entanglement. It works a little bit like Burr Rabbit and the Tar Baby. The more he fought and the more he kicked, the tighter he was held. But Paul says through Christ, you can be delivered from the power of darkness. And then this one. We have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Can you imagine the beauty of that? Picked up, carried over, set down, and having left this and belonging to this, it's a total change in the picture of our life. Used to belong there, now we're here. It's a glorious change. And if you've experienced it, as I have, there is something so beautiful about knowing that I'm living under God's disapproval in the life that I'm living. And after this transaction has taken place, and I have believed and I've repented and confessed my sin, I know now that I can look God in the face as a father. And that's a huge change. And then it says we're partakers with the inheritance of the saints. Revelation 21.7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Eternal inheritance and untold joy and unending discovery. Some people think it's going to be boring in heaven. Some people think, I can't even sing. What am I going to do in heaven? As if all we're going to do is stand around with crowns on and sing. David said this about uh, knowing God. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Anything that might make you more content and more happy and more joyful, God will not withhold that from you. When we're there, uh, it'll be his delight to do it. And I'm looking forward to it. It's part of our inheritance and in life. Now there's one door into this kingdom. It's open. It's a restricted opening. It's a narrow gate, but it's not closed. It's not denied. It's a narrow one. It's overlooked, but it's not hidden. It's there for those that choose to find it. And Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And we look at sin as a serious thing. And we should. I believe there's something even more serious still. And Jesus said this in John 3.19. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Yeah, we're sinners by nature, and God understands that. Uh, when people sin, they do what's natural to them, and God sees that. And God said there were times that God winked at this ignorance. 
but he provided the remedy. And we didn't get into this tonight, but the remedy he provides is the most precious, beautiful thing that ever existed, probably, his own son. In fact, Paul says, how would he not give you with him all things? In other words, if God already gave you his son, why would he withhold from you anything else he might need? Because he gave the best already. Now, if God gave his son and watched him live his life in antagonism to people around him, he watched him go through an unjust trial, watched him hang on a cross and bleed to death drop by drop, breath by breath, and suffer unjustly and die like a criminal. A person's sin that he's committed is one thing, but a person would look at that and say, you know, that doesn't really mean anything to me. That doesn't really matter to me. I just don't need that. That's one of the biggest offenses we could ever offer to God. There's a very short way to say this is the picture. We've seen God's holiness. We've seen our sin and a brief glimpse at the remedy he offers. I believe we're faced with a choice. We can either accept it or reject it. We can either accept that remedy or say, no thanks. Let's pray. Father, we're here tonight because you've allowed us to be here. Thank you for being faithful and showing us a little bit of what your Spirit would love us for us to know and understand about sin and righteousness and judgment. But thank you that the story doesn't stop there, but there's a remedy and a way to get from where we are to where we ought to be and from the power of darkness to the kingdom of light. And for anyone here, Lord, you know where we stand with you and you know if we're part of this kingdom and if we're not. Please assure us if we are. Keep our consciences, Lord, if we are. But Father, if you know we're on the outside, I pray that you would give us the, the ability and the faith and the, the, uh, the repentance in our hearts to say yes to the Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. I'm going to give an invitation tonight. And uh, the question is pretty simple and pretty basic. God knows where we stand. The question is if we do. And if you do and you know you're on the inside, this kind of message can just make us rejoice again that praise the Lord that I am not what I once was. If we find ourselves on the outside, it's a good night to get into the inside and take a step of faith. I'd like to ask our chorus to lead us into an invitation song. And if you know you need a drastic change in your life, repentance in your life, I'd invite you to come forward tonight for something different. Take a step of faith in a public way and say, yes, I'm, I'm serious about getting my life right with the Lord. Let's sing.
and change that invitation a little bit. Sometimes we know we have been born again and we have been walking with the Lord, but maybe there's something very specific that, that you know he does not approve of and something he wants you to take care of. There's also a good evening for that. And I just invite you, if you know that's your state, struggling with something that way, stand where you are in recognition of that and let's, uh, let that be a public testament of your willingness to deal with this and deal with God. Let's sing another verse here. Thank you for your attentiveness tonight. You've been a good audience, and uh, thank you for your continued prayers. I invite you to keep coming and keep praying and uh, supporting this week. I invite you to stand together and let's have a closing prayer, and then we'll consider ourselves dismissed. One more time, Lord, we come before you and uh, invite you to keep working in our hearts. Whatever you're saying, whatever you're doing, please have mercy and please have patience. And, Help us to continue to hear until that door is open and you're on the inside. Bless each one that's here and whatever struggle is going on and whatever need is expressed in the heart. Please give that person what they most need with you, most want. Dismiss us with your blessing. Go with us. For in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>